0: Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, Our we look at food, farming, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show and our environment. Produced here in Baltimore WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast as well on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Uh, and we are going to take a look in this year-end look at Martin O'Malley. Before we do that, I want to remind you, the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites is made possible in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. It belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org, MeQ's banner, Baltimore's Credit Union. So we have a panel this hour to look at uh, the outgoing governor and the incoming governor and where the environment and farming regulations may take us from fracking to phosphorus and more environmental justice issues that are abound in the state that never get a look at as well. Uh, we are joined here in studio by Joanna Diamond, who is executive director of Environment Maryland. Good to have you back, Joanna. Good to be here. Ms. Jones is here in the studio once again, director of Common Resources Program at Food and Water Watch. Good to have you back, Mitch. Thanks, Mark. In the studio with us is Dr. David Venko. Dr. David Vanko is Dean of the Jess and Mildred Fisher School of Science and Mathematics at Towson University and Chair of the Maryland Marcellus Shale Safe Drilling Initiative and Advisory Commission. David, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Thanks very much. And uh, joining us once again, Tim Wheeler, who is, of course, the Sun's Be More Green environmental blog writer and covers environment and farming and more for the Sun. And welcome back again, Tim Wheeler. Uh, thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. And you all can join us at 410-319-8888. Uh, you can also uh, email us at talk at steinershow.org, log on to our Facebook pages, uh, tweet me at Mark Steiner, Four one zero three one nine eight 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 is the number here. So here we are, year, it, year end, term end, well, it's almost the year end, that's kind of wild to think about. <laughs> it is December, uh, and uh, Martin O'Malley is on his way out. At the end, he's kind of thrashing his way through certain things, and one of those things has been the phosphorus regulation, which we've talked about, and there was... And I guess many people were shocked that he actually pushed us at the end uh, the way he did, um, uh, Tim Wheeler. Uh, And there's been a lot of pushback from the farm community, the farm bureau, more about uh, about this uh, and the communities that really supported him during the and other campaigns. So, what's the politics of this?
1: Well, uh, Mark, uh, you know, Governor O'Malley has uh, made uh, cleaning up the bay and and environmental. protection in general, one of uh, his administration's hallmarks, one of his priorities, uh, he had uh, committed to uh, doing something about phosphorus and, uh, and, and limiting the uh, over-application of uh, uh, poultry litter, uh, which is rich in phosphorus, on the uh, shore uh, years ago, uh, and it was supposed to have been in effect by around 2011. Uh, it took them a lot longer. Part of the issue was technical, getting a, a you know, a new index, a new method for doing this. And a lot of it was just the political pushback that was coming from the farming community, from the poultry industry. Uh, There were two separate attempts last year to uh, propose these regulations. They were pulled back uh, for uh, tweaking and for uh, for further discussions. Um, And uh, then, you know, at the beginning of this year, uh, with the resistance uh, still so strong, they went ahead and uh, agreed to to do an economic impact study, uh, that took longer than expected. It was supposed to have been finished in the end of summer, uh, and it wasn't released until, you know, here in late fall. Um, but the administration was committed to this. I know at one point uh, in September I actually had a few minutes with the governor, and I asked him while that study was still pending, uh, you know, assuming it says it's going to cost, uh, there's going to be a significant economic impact on the poultry industry and on farming, uh, do you intend to still go ahead even if this study uh, says that and at the time he said uh, essentially uh, have you ever known us to back down well uh, so then you know i was basically waiting to see <laughs> what happened and uh, at an the very last response. minute
0: he did at the very last minute he did what respond he or did, back down you
1: know, you know, he did go he did go forward <laughs> he did not back down yeah right. no i uh, you know but it was uh, it was kind of a touch and go when i realized uh, looking at the calendar that we were down to the l- last day that regulations could be proposed and still be finalized in his administration uh, I, I, you know, started nudging the uh, governor's press office to say, well, is something coming? Uh, the Department of Agriculture was silent on the issue. They they said they knew nothing was going to happen. And, uh, 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 you know, uh, basically almost at the 11th hour, around 6 o'clock on Friday, which is a favorite time to dump uh, news, uh, <laughs> they uh,
0: they uh, put out a statement saying that, uh, indeed, he was moving forward. So what is your take on this, Mitch? I mean, this is a, a battleground for you.
2: Yeah, it is. Um you know, we were obviously uh, disappointed that the governor didn't move earlier when uh, the regulations were first proposed. You know, these regulations, everybody uh, seems to forget that these regulations were actually originally worked out in a, a deal that was originally called a consensus deal with uh, representatives from, from agri- uh, agriculture, including Delmarva Poultry Institute, uh, the Farm Bureau, the Maryland Farm Bureau, and the Grain Producers Association. Um you know, they had made a deal. Uh, Bill Satterfeld over at uh, DPI, the Dummer Poultry, said it was a step forward um, with some things in there to help the chicken industry. You know, so at first this was a consensus agreement. And then kind of the chicken manure hit the fan, so to speak, when actual farmers got wind of this and realized that the costs were going to be placed on them and not on industry, which is typical. and And that's where the pushback came from. And we saw the O'Malley administration scramble with that and begin this kind of delay. You know, we think it's about time that they release the PMTs. We think that, uh, you know, there are still some loopholes in there that are problematic. But we have to do something about the phosphorus that's being spread on the fields in Maryland because it is a leading uh, source, the lead source of phosphorus uh, in the Bay. And it's, it's killing the Bay. We have to do something. So... You know, in that respect, it's good that he did it. He should have done it earlier, and, and the regs really should be stronger.
0: But one of the things I, you said here, let me just kind of pull out, take issue with just for a moment. When you said what the farmer said, and, and uh, uh, because they realized it was going to be on them and, and not the industry, the, the high cost. I mean, A, there does seem to be a high cost associated with this for the farming industry. Um, and I think that was what the study from Purdue School of Business at Salisbury kind of pointed out. Um, you can take each with that if you like, but I mean that that, that did point that out. And I'm not so sure that the farmers have, and they, who have been on the show many many times have, with their points of view. The the, the farmers who do um, uh, do grow chickens for the larger firms like Purdue and Tyson and and, and Mount Air and the others. Um, but I don't think that any. I heard anyone ever say they will, that they they were the onus is on them and not the industry. I think that what they're saying is it shouldn't be their period uh, on them or the industry, and that that was. That in that it may be a political point of yours and <laughs> Food and Water Watch that industry should be paying, but it clearly is not theirs.
2: Well, I think if you're a contract grower for Purdue, you're not likely to say, well, Purdue should be paying for this, not me. Um, but, you know, as I've pointed out on the show before, the political analysis when the PMTs uh, were uh, in the mix and there was the debate in the legislature over whether or not to do this this economic study – um, at the time, there were political scientists uh, at uh, Salisbury who were pointing out that it, they thought it was interesting that the governor was pushing a, uh, a phosphorus reduction strategy in which the cost would be borne by the growers and the farmers and was opposed to other alternatives that would put the cost on the integrator. I mean, that was analysis that isn't only ours. It came from academics uh, you know, out on the eastern shore. So it's not just a food and water watch position. It's a a real position. I wasn't saying it wasn't a real position. Okay. But, you know, so, again, I'm not surprised that somebody who's under contract with Purdue isn't going to say, gee, make Jim Purdue pay for this, not me. Um, But it is a fact of the matter that the PMT costs are going to be borne largely by uh, these folks who who are just scraping by trying to grow chickens for Purdue or Mount Air or or any of the other integrators.
0: And I think that's where some of the sticking points on this, uh, and um, come, um, Joanna, and I'm going to come back also to Tim about this, which is which is I think people don't understand sometimes what farmers have to live with, what they have to go through just to survive on a day to day basis as as an industry. And we talked earlier about some of the issues that some organic farmers are even having with oh, regulation, not phosphorus, but other other regulations that are pushing them to the brink. They feel so. I mean, uh, these are
3: sure. I mean, the industry needs to help fund pollution cleanup costs and not expect all of the costs to be burdened by these small farmers or taxpayers. Uh, And taxpayers generally are funding these tabs. And, uh, you know, in 2013, Maryland's poultry industry brought in over $804 million in revenue. Um, it's, It's not like... Um, it's it's something that should be burdened by us. It's their pollution, um, as one of my colleagues likes to say. You know, I, when I was growing up, I was taught to clean up my own mess, um, and so I think that's part of sort of what um, the concept around this is. Uh, you know, having said that, phosphorus pollution from manure is getting worse. It's not getting better. This is um, you know this is from reports from a couple different studies that have been released, uh, and and so. What needs to happen is that, as Mitch pointed out, you know, agriculture is the single single largest uh, source of pollution to the Bay. Phosphorus is getting worse. We need to do something about it. Um, and so, you know, I would also agree with Mitch that, you know, we wish that these regulations weren't delayed and that, um, you know, these regulations weren't pulled a minimum of a couple different times, um, but it needs to get done. This problem is getting worse; it's not getting better, um, and it's really one of the largest opportunities to actually clean up the bay that we've had in the last thirty years.
0: Tim,
1: well, uh, I mean, Joanna's correct in pointing out that uh, you know there are indications from from water sampling, not just from modeling or anything else, that phosphorus levels are still going up in in the rivers, and primarily in uh, uh, you know in the ag dominated. Uh, rivers on the eastern shore it's you know uh, leading suspect obviously is agriculture uh, according to the epa that 's still the dominant source of uh, of nutrient pollution and sediment pollution into the bay um, you know it, there's no question that there's an impact uh, anytime you change the status quo there are winners and losers um, and this is an industry that you know uh, to I'm, I'm not a business reporter but i I do read the news and uh, there are you know low margins in this industry so uh, you know so so, those costs do count uh the administration did try to you know soften the blow here by uh, uh you know extending this thing out for a six year phase in uh they're proposing to increase uh funding uh the state basically uh, subsidizes the transport of manure off the lower shore away from the uh uh lands that are over fertilized and uh and they have uh, been pushing uh with uh, financial incentives and others. To uh, promote alternative uses of manure, say uh, through uh, through burning it uh, or otherwise using it to generate energy, um, those things uh, take time, and they still don't completely, uh, you know, soften the blow. The administration also was going to offer to set up a subsidy to help pay help farmers pay for chemical fertilizer, which would of course have little or no phosphorus in it, to sort of Make up for the uh, for the
0: loss of the uh, poultry manure as a fertilizer, but it's a uh, it's a challenge. It really is. Of course, then we we could do another whole the entire discussion on chemical fertilizers and how you get to the chemical <laughs> fertilizers and what they do to <laughs> the earth in the process of making them. But but uh, let me ask this question: I'm curious what the four of you think. Uh, what what will be uh, Martin O'Malley's? Before we jump into fracking, which is the which is one of the big issues we want to tackle here uh, for the rest of the program is is the new fracking. Uh, Regulations being um, uh, that O'Malley's opening up, and what that will say for both his and the Hogan administration coming up, and where we're going with that in the state of Maryland. Um, uh, but what do you think his legacy will be, his environmental legacy will be? This man who would love to be president or at least head of the DNC. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I will say, as it relates to phosphorus management, I mean. Governor Malley did commit to actually implementing these phosphorus rules back in 2011, and although it's been delayed um, because of a lot of resistance from the agricultural lobby and a lot of powerful interests, um, he did convene a bunch of stakeholder meetings and um, did come up with rules that are, um, that do have a f- fairly substantial phase-in period, and um you know, we made frankly many concessions. Ultimately, it's a very reasonable rule. It shows that it can be done. Um, and so, in terms of uh, clean water and, and water pollution, I think that uh, the governor's um, commitment to actually implementing these rules is quite strong. And he has always sort of been an advocate for the bay. Um, and and I was actually hearing the same thing that Tim was hearing, in that you know the the governor and the administration had never really let go of the fact that they wanted to actually implement these rules, so we're very happy that that's gotten done. So in terms of water quality, I think his legacy is going to be quite strong, and we, of course, thank him for um, actually getting this thing done.
0: <laughs> so, Tim, before we jump into fracking here, which I really want to spend a good bit of time on where we're going and state, without what do you think the O'Malley's legacy will be as the man who's covered this?
1: Well, certainly, uh, you know, environmental protection and, and uh, working to clean up the bay have been uh, uh, major elements in his administration. Uh, and he committed to those pretty early on in his first term, uh, when it was clear at that point that the, uh, that the bay restoration, the bay cleanup was, was essentially stuck in neutral, uh, for all the, you know, billions that had been spent and, uh, you know, decades worth of, of effort. Uh, in essence, the bay wasn't getting much better, uh, overall. And in some places it was still getting worse. Um. So, uh, I mean, things that have happened under his administration—he's he's pushed, uh, you know, major green legislation. He's pushed to uh, increase resources. Perhaps one of the most significant things, uh, you know, and, and a thing that you know essentially contributed to the backlash against his administration was he he raised funds uh, through uh, you know increasing the flush fee, the flush tax, if you will, on uh, on wastewater to help pay for uh, upgrades of sewage treatment plants, which have been one of the most effective things at uh, helping to clean up the base so far. And, uh, you know, he uh, threw his support behind uh, the, uh, you know, the stormwater management fee uh, to deal with the runoff issues in urban and suburban areas, uh, which, you know, has, has, was was part of the uh, campaign that uh, Larry Hogan successfully uh, argued, uh, I guess, to, to many voters that, uh, you know, that they were being uh, overtaxed and overfeed.
0: Uh, Dr. Vanka, what do you think is the the way will be in all
4: this? Well, from the point of view of fracking, five years ago when gas companies first applied for permits to drill and frack in western Maryland, uh, I think he recognized very quickly that uh, Maryland was not ready to do that without looking into it very carefully. He recognized risks were involved, and he began a process that's lasted quite a long time now to develop what he called a gold standard, of um of regulation and monitoring and enforcement uh and to determine whether such a gold standard could be constructed such that the risks would be really minimized and acceptable so uh, that's quite different from what's happened in other states as you know um north carolina had a fracking process a commission process that only lasted a few months and and uh The the result, which is drill baby drill, really, uh, was almost preordained. Um, Pennsylvania didn't have much of a process because they had a long history of oil and gas development. They had lots of regulations in place, and yet we found that by – we found by looking at mistakes that were happening in Pennsylvania, there could be a better process. So I – once again, I think he recognized risks early, and um, decided to take a measured, um, serious look at this before allowing it.
0: So, where this, this, we segue into this, let's, let's let's get into the fracking issue for the rest of the program here because mm-hmm. I think this is this is this is the, the major issue that I think will be part of where the Hogan administration takes it because they clearly are. Uh, uh, he clearly stated in his in the, in the studio that um, he is pro fracking, wants mm-hmm. to see it happen, and. And And must mention make a push. we see them want to open up the george Washington national park. I don't know if the O'Malley uh, um, uh, effort has anything to do with that or relates to that at all, but the national park that straddles these three states uh that they, they want to allow fracking as uh, they like said in a limited way so what so what about this analysis of what, where this takes us with fracking? I mean clearly, I know that you Food and water Watch has been opposed to fracking, yeah. From the beginning? No yeah. What I also have
2: a completely different take on O'Malley's environmental legacy. So if I could do that really quickly, you Mark, may. I'd appreciate it. Um, you know, I actually think um, that his, his failure to really directly address agricultural pollution is going to uh, undermine any legacy he might have for, you know, supporting offshore wind or any of the other uh, things that he's supported. You know, he – sent an email that we obtained through a public in, uh, public information uh, request to Jim Purdue, promising to never make the poultry industry responsible for the manure as long as he was governor. And you know what? He's leaving office next month having held that promise to Jim Purdue. That is something that is really unconscionable because it is the major source of pollution. And he has promised the industry that they would not be responsible for it. That is a major failing. It's a major failing and i think that it it really does undercut anything else that might have happened uh during his his time in office in terms of attempting to um promote the environment and then when you toss in the uh, stormwater fee which you know uh, I live here in Baltimore, and I know people were upset about it. Now, is it necessary? Yes. But again, this is you know, a fee being paid by homeowners when, again, the major polluting industry of the bay is getting off without having to pay. And I think that when you begin to look at how environmental policy around bay pollution was structured during those eight years, you can see that you know costs were borne by uh, normal taxpayers. They weren't borne by the industries that are actually doing the polluting, and I think that that is a... a a real problem and really undercuts any sort of claim that he's going to have as he moves forward. We all know he wants to run for president um, as he moves forward trying to, to become a progressive uh, candidate for the presidency.
0: Thank you. I meant to let you have that analogy let you throw that out there, and we'll come back to more of that as, as we as we look at the new Hogan administration, where this right. takes us and where it takes us as we go out and as we lead up to our Annapolis Summit sometime in January, um, that will be taking place with Governor Hogan. That by then, he will be Governor Hogan. Right. By the time we do this, so but let's talk about this: this, this, what the, his announcement on fracking means, yeah. um, and where this takes the state, and kind of the. I'm, I'm very curious about the, the kind of regulations that Dr. Vancoy that, that that he's put in place um, that will create a safe fracking base, and those who think that there's no such thing as a safe fracking base, and where that takes us. Um, let's go through the environmental side before we go to break here.
3: Um, Well, I I will say that from an Environment Maryland perspective, we are disappointed that the governor decided to move forward with fracking. Um, From uh, the reports that we have independently done and also including even the the public health study that was um, commissioned, um there are just too many uh, factors and too many different pollution threats from fracking from air pollution, land degradation, water pollution, um, threats to our health um, and then multiply that by the thousands of drilling sites we can potentially have and we just do not think we can come up with a workable enforceable regulatory scheme to protect us. Um, so while you know I, I understand that um, that, the commission worked hard for three years. Um, there are several places throughout the country that have fracking. Uh, many of them claim that they have sort of the best practices. Um, and even those practices aren't preventing spills from happening, uh, methane leakage from happening, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, we, we simply don't think that it can necessarily be enforceable. So we are uh, disappointed that the governor decided to make this decision, especially in light of the fact that he wants to be seen as this Environmental uh, governor that he wants to leave a legacy of um, you know of, of pro good strong environmental policies. Uh, we think that flies in the face of that legacy.
0: I mean the uh, the fact that Governor O'Malley though, did a three year um, study that he didn't just allow this thing to happen willy nilly. Um, and I wanna, when we come back I do want to talk to Dr. Vanco about the, the science. Of what what he says is being put in place here to ensure things like uh, air pollution, water pollution, and land and, and land degradation. How that is offset by the, the the things that you've been looking at in terms of engineering and math. I mean, let me, let me get a closing thought. If we go to break for about one minute here.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I would just say one that you know, even if we did believe, and we don't, that you know, the regulations that are going to be proposed could make fracking safe, and they won't. They're not going to be promulgated. I mean, let's just be honest about what do that. You mean that like I mean home. that that Larry Hogan will be governor before these regulations could ever take effect, and he's not going to let them go through. I think we all recognize that, and so what we need to recognize is that this was a political move by Martin O'Malley, and it it probably has again as much to do with uh, what's happening uh, with his ambitions as it does with what's happening here in Maryland, and so that's a problem. But let's not fool ourselves and think that these regulations are going to be promulgated by the pro-fracking Larry Hogan administration because that's not going to happen. Well, in a, in
0: Michael Dresser of the Sun, in a news conference called to announce uh, the, his members of the transition team, um, Hogan's transition team. Uh, Hogan looked at the 30 new regulations that he says O'Malley is putting in place, and his quote was, I don't really believe in making all these last-minute Midnight decisions and trying to sneak things in at the end, Hogan said. It's not the way I'd conduct myself in leaving office. And so what he does when he comes in will be a question. 410-319-8888. John, you're the first caller up. But when we come back, we're going to go right to Dr. Vanco to talk about what these regulations are in place and what they're doing to safeguard the environment uh, if, the, if fracking is allowed. We talk about the politics of where Hogan might take that. 410-319-8888. We'll get to your call, John Amore. Stay with us as we look at fracking coming to Maryland and what does it mean. back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. We are talking uh, to our panel here about uh, where we are going with fracking in Maryland. So we're here with Joanna Diamond, Executive Director of Environment Maryland, Ms. Jones, who's Director of Common Resources Program at Food and Water Watch, and Dr. David Vanco, who's Dean of the Jess Mildred. Fisher College of Science and Mathematics at Towson University, and was chair of the Maryland Marcellus Shale Safe Drilling Initiative Advisory Commission. And Tim Wheeler, who is the Be More Re- Green reporter for the Baltimore Sun and their environmental reporter, four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. So, uh, Dr. David Vanco, David, let's, let's go right to you and to talk about talk about the, the biggest concern for people, um, especially um, and the environmental movement, and people who, from most polling in the And the liberal and progressive end of the political spectrum of America is the fear about what fracking does uh, to the land, to the water, and as as Joanna put it, uh, the the air pollution, water pollution, and land degradation. So you you spent three years running this commission. Right. So I'm going to give you kind of some time here to talk about what it is that was laid out and and what you think can happen that would make this safe if, in fact, the regulations put by this commission were put in and actually were, were put in by the next administration.
4: Well, I mentioned that, that the state recognized that there were many risks involved with fracking uh, as early as five years ago. And so one of the things that we as a commission did in advising the uh, Department of the Environment and the Department of Natural Resources was we, we uh, studied the various risks that had been identified and, and focused in on over 60 uh, risk pathways that needed to be very carefully um, considered. And so these are risks to groundwater quality, risks to surface water and trout, Mm -hmm. fish, for example, ecosystems, Uh, risks to the air, Uh, risks of accidents like explosions and and, uh, spills, earthquake risks. So I could go, go through a long list, but it was a, a good sixty or sixty five uh, uh, risk pathways that had to be looked at and so over the course of the three and a half years we um, we discussed these we had experts come in and make presentations one by one of the of the different pathways um, and uh, developed a, a a set of or, or or suggested a set of best practices that uh industry uses or could use that would help mitigate each of those risks. So one of the things that 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 happened sort of late in the process was a was a a, a risk analysis document. And 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 the risks were looked at first of all if best practices were not employed. And then if we employed the best practices in drilling, in, uh, would would the risk be mitigated to a low enough level that uh, it could be acceptable? Um, Mitch mentioned that uh, the O'Malley administration is writing regulations now and trying to get them in before the end of the year. Right. Um, but that's really not rushing to get them in. It, it doesn't recognize the fact that, that these have been Talked about and studied for three and a half years, so it's not a last-minute um, t- decision on on regulations. It's it's
0: taken a long time. Well, can, can you talk about? it Probably turn back to the panelists and go to the phones here. Um, uh, and John, with the first caller, we're going to come right to you. What what is in place to control what you're talking about? To control the dangers of of, 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 of air and water pollution, of uh, of spills and explosions, and, yeah. and the effect environment. So what what can you put in place to actually protect? the community from that and our land. Let let me give
4: you a couple of examples. In fact, there are some things that we already put in place through legislation in previous legislatures. For example, we recommended and the legislature passed a uh, financial assurances package for oil and gas drilling or for gas drilling. And what this financial assurances package does is it allowed the state to raise the amount of uh, bonding Level for companies, if they 're going to drill that they have to put up a bond to cover um, accidental spills and things of that nature. Um, Maryland, in this bill, became the first state to require companies to have environmental pollution insurance and and uh, environmental pollution is typically excluded from insurance policies mm-hmm. um, but companies are now starting to write insurance policies that include environmental pollution uh, as being covered and uh, it's in law now that maryland will require companies to carry environmental pollution insurance that satisfies uh, the department of the environment one financial assurance that maryland uh, we recommend should have in place and yet they don't yet is a severance tax on gas and what a severance the se- uh, counties have severance taxes. So the counties will recognize some, some uh, financial benefit if drilling takes place. But that's just going to go into their general fund. What we recommended was a gas severance tax that would fund a uh, shale gas impact fund, sort of like a statewide uh, mini super fund, so that uh, if there is an environmental pollution episode, that can't be tied to an individual company, or can't be tied, or, or the company's out of business or something of that nature, then this impact fund would be available for the cleanup. Or the impact co- fund could be used for any uh, immediate cleanup that needs to be done, uh, and then you figure out later on whether that money should have been used for it or whether a, a company or companies are liable. So, So that's, an example of financial assurances of something that that, that we've put in place
0: so, so so let me go to the phone ship before i go back to our panelists and, uh, and to talk about their 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 response to this and whether and how, if and how we can have safe fracking for gas in maryland or anywhere else 410-319-8888 uh john in columbia you're on the air
5: hi yeah hi, i'm uh, i almost don't know where to start here uh I'm by listening to this these uh the pundits here on your panel, and I'm aghast that uh that they're giving martin o'malley a uh a good grade on environment. i've heard nothing from his administration that was more than uh a, kind of a whitewash i mean this is in the, the his uh regulations on the phosphorus is it's like the oldest trick in the book if they, he ran out the clock. Until the very end, and just as one of the gentlemen said, the uh, the, the new administration is never going to let this stuff go through. And the only reason that he did that is for the poli- pol- political expediency of a presidential run. And it's why uh, you know. And the other thing that nobody mentioned uh, in terms of the natural gas and fracking is Cove Point, which is something that he is he backdoored the uh, his approval without any uh, uh, public comment. In fact, when they, hold, they held the vote, they held the vote before the public comments, and it's, and he was out the door. Literally, he walked out before the, any of the uh, public spoke. So, you know, his record, while he's given lots of uh, lip service to the environment and to uh, things that matter to people that are in the know, his actual record and what he's actually done has been appallingly uh, lacking, and I can't see how anybody who's paid attention to any of this stuff can say otherwise.
0: John, I appreciate that thought, and, and, and you're calling in. I, I think that's this part of what Mitch Jones was saying early in his kind of analysis of, of what he saw in O'Malley's administration uh, and, and what they did in terms of the environment. I think that it is a very kind of mixed bag as you're pointing out, but I I, I want to kind of come back to, to Mitch and also to get to Tim Wheeler back in the conversation here about fracking and and the and the and the the possibility that we can do this um, with insurance and other things that might ameliorate any disasters that might take place.
2: Well, we think the best way to avoid disasters with fracking is to not allow fracking. Period. You don't need a severance tax if you don't have fracking. You don't need other insurance funds if you don't have fracking because you're not going to have the accidents. So, you know, Food and Water Watch since 2011 has called for a ban on fracking, not only here in Maryland, but across the country, and we continue to do so. And we actually think that the election of Larry Hogan provides a real impetus for the legislature to go beyond the measures that the professor mentioned, Um, you know, for the past three years We've come to the legislature and asked them to, to take a variety of different actions, and it's not just Food and Water Watch. We've been calling for a ban. Others have been calling for a moratorium. There's been uh, a bill to uh, prohibit the treatment, storage, and disposal of fracking wastewater in the state uh, that we at Food and Water Watch have have promoted, and a variety of other bills. And what we continue to be told by the folks who run the legislative committees is, well, there's a commission, so we're not going to do anything. There's a commission. We're not going to do anything. And part of that was, of course, their belief that forever and always there would be a Democrat in, in the governor's mansion, and so they'd have plenty of time to, to address these issues. Well, guess what? That's no longer the case. It's no longer the case that they're going to be able to take as much time as they want. And if we want to stop fracking in Maryland, if you believe like we at Food and Water Watch do that, and, and to be quite frankly, as the commission report says, even if you implement all of the best management practices, you'll reduce the risks, not eliminate them. We don't think it's worth the risk. And so if you agree with us, then the only thing left to do at this point, besides call Governor O'Malley and tell him that you don't like the fact that he's going to put forward these regs or that he's decided to do this, is we need the legislature to act. You know, they come back in in January, uh, they've got that 90-day session, and they need to act to stop fracking from going forward, because I think we all are aware that Larry Hogan wants to move this forward, whether he decides to do it on January 21st, which he could, uh, or whether he decides he wants to pursue his own regulatory pattern, I don't think anybody at this point really knows. But if the legislature acts, they can actually stop fracking from coming to Maryland.
0: The, Tim, Tim, uh, you, you, you look at this uh, as, as, and cover this as a journalist from Environmental Maryland. I mean, for, for the uh, for the for the blog for the Sun.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, there has been you know debate in Annapolis uh, the last several years over. Fracking uh, and uh, Mitch is exactly right a, a lot of the uh, response from uh, especially from key committee chair uh, chairs was the wait for the uh, commission to finish its work and uh, and we would uh, see what uh, they propose and deal with it then uh, Of course, uh, this study took longer I guess than anybody anticipated uh, it was It was pretty uh, you know pretty uh, prolonged. they went into a lot of detail and a lot of reviews. Uh, and you know, in the end, uh, the the regulations and the proposals here coming out at the very tail end of the O'Malley administration, it's it is going to you know generate another debate here. Uh, there's no question that some kind of regulation has to occur because uh, essentially Maryland does not regulate uh, or, or, or their regulations on drilling now. Never envision the kind of techniques that are now being used, the uh, horizontal drilling, uh, multiple wells drilled from a single pad, all that. You know, they would have to uh, amend the regulations. The, the, you know, the possibility, one for, you know, scenario is, of course, that uh, Larry Hogan would come in and pick and choose among the uh, pr- various regulatory proposals uh, that would be put forward by the O'Malley administration and pick those that are uh, more favorable to the industry and, and not the others. Uh, he has said that uh, he thinks that it can be done safely and that he would do it safely. I guess we'll have to wait and see what his idea of safe is.
0: So let me – before I turn to Joanna, let me I'll go back to to, to David Vanco first. Please join us here at four one zero We'll come to your calls in a moment. So do you th- is, is, this is about the politics and the science of this for a moment. Okay. Uh, the, the, so, A, the politics of it seems to be that, that um, fracking is a reality that can't be stopped. So you have to regulate it to minimize the potential environmental damage. I mean – let me just stop there. I mean, is that is that part of what the the commission is fueled by? No pun intended. <laughs> well, one of the one of the um,
4: themes that came up frequently in the commission, because the commission was a broad spectrum of people, all the way from Senator Edwards to uh, wine growers and 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 Trout Unlimited and uh-huh. Nature Conservancy and and, and et cetera. Uh, we heard a lot of different points of view. One point of view, and this came frequently from, from Senator Edwards, was that, that uh, in his mind the gas development issue is a, is a property issue, a personal property issue. And so the, if, if one bans the activity, then the loser there is, is the, the person who owns the gas rights. And in the U.S., gas rights or mineral rights – and surface rights are very frequently separated. And, and, and so uh, a lot of the gas rights out in Western Maryland are owned by companies, sometimes coal companies who bought up the mineral rights long ago so that they could possibly get coal. And now they find that they're holding gas rights and they can lease them. Uh, and a real issue is people who own the surface rights, who own the property, say you own a 300-acre farm, but you don't own the gas rights. You're obligated to allow the gas right owner access to that gas, and you're obligated to to make a, a reasonable, give them reasonable access to your land. So another thing that the commission really recommends strongly, and hasn't been enacted yet, is a Surface Owners Protection Act, a SOPA. So. Uh, there are a lot of things that that we would that need to fall in place before the many many people are satisfied that that fracking can proceed with without
0: with minimal risk. And, I, and what you're talking is very real. My sister, who lives up in the mountains and by herself in West Virginia, just told me that in her land, uh, that she lives on by a river, uh, in a pristine river at the moment mm-hmm. anyway, um, that that she found out that they could frack in West Virginia from miles away, coming in under the ground to go under her land to pull out what gas they needed. Um, and she has no safeguards in that regard at all because there's no safeguards like that in West Virginia at all for the surface property owners. So I think that and that's real all over the country. But so the question, I think the political question here seems to be, in you know, on, on some ways, um, uh, and uh, Joanna, is that is that we the, the assumption I think is made in some sense is not the assumption is made I think by the amount of administration most people in in political world that the gas is here and gas fuels our economy and gas fuels uh, America's homes and the cars we drive and it has become one of the largest exporting commodities in the United States out. Uh, we are no longer a gas importer and oil importer we are an exporter now of both those, and fracking is used for both gas and oil um, so that we the, so the, the political assumption is it 's there it 's power literally and figuratively it 's power uh, and we have to, if we 're going to have it, we have to figure out a way to regulate it, which is what I think um, Dr. Vanco is saying the O'Malley administration is trying to do
3: well if we 're going to talk about power and uh, and energy and sort of where we want to see ourselves going um, instead of seeing fracking or fracked gas as sort of a transition fuel, we should be talking about where we want to see the state going and we want to see it move toward wind and solar and clean energy sources. And those are, by the very nature of what they are, sustainable. They're here forever. They're clean. Um, They don't have health repercussions, land degradation repercussions, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of where we actually want to see the where we actually want to power our system for Maryland and the energy sources that we want to use, uh, we want to see it go to the clean energy sources and not to this dirty practice of drilling.
0: But 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 uh, I hear that. But um, before I go back to Dr. to, to Dr. Van um and and um, to Tim Wheeler, uh, Mitch, I mean, but uh, what I'm pushing here, the idea is the reality is for most people in politics, most people in this country is that gas is. A, jobs. It's B, what fuels our country, what fuels the export economy of the nation. And that's what we are facing. And fracking doesn't seem to be going away, so you better figure out how to regulate it.
2: I think that is the perception of many people in politics today, but I think that they uh, need to have their perception changed and the reality needs to be different. The fact of the matter is, as Joanna said if we really want to move to a clean economy, a cleaner economy with a cleaner energy base, if we really want to address climate change, and let's be honest, fracking is a major component of the climate change debate, although people tend to pretend that it's not, we have to stop this process of relying on fossil fuels. And what fracking does is it extends that reliance on fossil fuels, be it oil or be it natural gas, into the future for as long as we're able to frack. And what what we have to do is say no to that. And, yes, it's part of a geopolitical calculus. It's a way of fighting against Vladimir Putin, and it's a way of doing a variety of other things, trying to gain an upper hand over China and so on and so forth. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that when we're fracking gas here in the U.S., let's talk about we could tie it to Cove Point. We could tie it to all of the, the other. Ex- natural ex- gas the going to be the built on natural the, gas on the export, right, or any of the others. What we're talking about is fracking our country, to send this gas abroad, and the fact of the matter is that the gas is most likely going to go primarily to Japan, which is the largest importer of natural gas in the world. It's one-third of the global LNG import market is is just Japan, right? That's larger than all of the European Union put together. The gas is going to go to Japan. It's going to go to China. It's going to go to India, and it's going to fuel those economies, and it's going to fuel jobs there. The sorts of jobs that, that are tied to the fracking industry here in the U.S. are transitory jobs. It's people coming in from outside of the community. You know, it, in Pennsylvania, we looked at uh, Pennsylvania because obviously a lot of fracking is going on in Pennsylvania. And there was a study done there where they named one of the number one growth industries around fracking was ambulatory care. I mean, is that really the sort of, of economy that we want to build? Is one in which ambulance drivers and EMTs is, is going to be a major component of growth? I don't think so. And you know, there are a variety of other uh, problems associated with the kind of transitory nature of, of the workforce that comes with fracking. Some of those were outlined in the commission's report. Increases in sexually transmitted diseases, domestic violence, automobile accidents. The, the, the dirty nature, the inherently dangerous nature a fracking goes beyond just the drilling process to the whole economy that comes with it. And what we're saying is we need to move away from that. We need to move away from this fossil fuel dependence, which is, you know, none of us are going to win if we continue to be dependent on fossil fuels. There won't be winners and losers. There will be losers. And we need to move away from that. Maryland had an opportunity. Governor O'Malley had an opportunity to stand up and take a stance on that, and he failed to do it by making this decision to move ahead with the regulations and saying that fracking can be done safely in his mind. We think he's wrong, and he shouldn't have made that decision.
0: So how much of that was part of the, go ahead, let me let you respond first, far as a question, Dr. Lincoln.
4: I just wanted to uh, get a, a, a word in about Pennsylvania and how they're different from Maryland in one other very important respect. Uh, Years ago, the governor of Pennsylvania required the state to open the public lands to drilling. And therefore, the people who were in charge of environmental protection in Pennsylvania put together some regulations, some very good. um, And Pennsylvania is fracking state lands now, making a lot of money. We have always been told in the commission that uh, state lands are are off limits. Um, I don't know whether that could change, and I don't know how you all feel about the possibility that, with a new uh, secretary and a new governor, that 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 point might change. So, it's something to be wary of. And, and
0: just a quick, before, before I go back to my other panelists, and back to Tim Wheeler um, for the end of the program, I was thinking about one of the things that Mitchell was saying: how much of the debate that took place on this commission? Um, was around the question of no fracking, and alternative looks at what we can do about energy, as opposed to having fracking in Maryland. The
4: commission didn't really address n- no fracking or or alternative energy sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't part of the charge. It was the the charge was to
0: study whether fracking could be done safely. And so, and when we talk about safely, just to be clear what you were saying earlier. When we talk about the, the, the safety of fracking, um, at least from what little I've read about th- what the commission put out and, and and what you've been saying on the program, is that th- th- these were um, <coughs> efforts to kind of ameliorate uh, any possible disasters. I mean, you can't really prevent one, but you can take care of the consequences of a potential disaster. Am I right? Is that, am I right or wrong? Yeah. Okay. Or, or a,
4: a risk pathway. So right. for each of the risk pathways, we. We, we, we went through this uh, process where, at the end of the day, uh, you determine that uh, with best practices, is the risk very high, is it moderate, or is it low, and, and, and even produce sort of a, a matrix of red, green, and yellow. And uh, at the end of the day, both the state's risk analysis and also a risk analysis that was done uh, by an independent organization uh, through Citizen Shale and the um, and Chesapeake. Uh, Bay Foundation? It wasn't the CBF. Commission. No, um, well it was some of the organization. But anyway, the sec- these two risk analyses both came up with pretty much the same uh, conclusion, which was that very high risks are mostly associated with the trucking traffic associated with this industry.
0: So let me, we have to close out here, like three minutes left in the segment, and we'll give everybody a kind of closing thought. And, uh, Tim, we literally have like three minutes left. Let me start with you and go around the room, Tim. Okay. Um,
1: well, I think, you know, the the fact is, as uh, Dr. Menko has sort of laid out, uh, they've done all this study, they've laid out, you know, what could be a gold standard for how to regulate fracking, the policy question about whether to go forward and how to go forward. Uh, is left to the next governor and to the uh, General Assembly, uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see how that works out. Wh- He's exactly right. I mean, up to this point, uh, there has been no fracking. There have been no wind turbines either on state-owned lands and, and state forests or state parks. That was a policy choice. The next governor, with the stroke of a pen or just a, a, a word, could change that. So, so we have uh, we're going to have a, a very interesting debate here. One of the un- uh, on the last point on on that was yeah, we're um, almost out of time. Okay, uh, uh, is that the issue of whether going ahead with fracking could in fact undermine the other economic bases in Western
0: Maryland, which are tourism and outdoor recreation. Which I mean, we didn't cover today, which we will in the future programs. Quick closing thoughts, Joanna Diamond, Mitch Jones.
3: Well, on that point of costs, um, certainly you know, when we're talking about the costs of what fracking means, not just in terms of economics, but in terms of um, social well-being, you know, fracking costs us billions of dollars in externalities um, throughout the country. And certainly, uh, Maryland would not necessarily be exempt from that polluted drinking water, air pollution, ruined roads, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the benefits that could potentially come from fracking in terms of any sort of limited amount of gas that can come from it are certainly outweighed by the toxic legacy that it has. And so, um, you know, we do need to talk about where energy is going. And I do think it needs to be in the clean energy direction.
0: Very quick final thought, Mitch.
2: Yeah, I got a phone call this morning from someone asking me, what can we do to stop this? And the answer is, one, call Governor O'Malley. Exp- express your displeasure to call your legislators, your legislators, the newly elected ones, the ones who got reelected, and tell them that we have to do something in the upcoming session to stop fracking in Maryland.
0: Well, clearly this will be a major topic of conversation for the Mark Steiner Show here in Soundbites as well. I want to thank all of our guests. Dr. David Van Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming in the studio. Thank you. Good to have you in the studio here. Uh, Joanna Diamond, Ms. Jones, and Tim Wheeler. Great to have the back, three of you back again. Thanks, Thanks for Mark. having Thanks me. Thanks so much. And, thank of course, Mark. we'll be linking to all of their websites and the work they do, so it'll all be there on the steinershow.org Website, uh, you're listening here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, which is produced uh, right here in Baltimore, W E A eighty point nine FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast again on the Marvel Public Radio, W S T L ninety point seven FM. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Henry and Seth Mavronis. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our intern is Sianna Greaves. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. You can hear this show again and podcast any of our pair shows and, other th- and find out about our guests and the work that they do by visiting steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download all of our podcasts on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.